Good morning, everybody. The scripture today is Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, but it can be found on page 487 in the Pew Bible. Um, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he took with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is a pretty well-known passage, and a lot of people see the climactic point of this passage being at the very end. Uh, The New Living Translation says, Here I am, send me. I learned it as, Here am I, send me. How many of y'all learned it that way? Here am I, send me. And, And we oftentimes see this Uh, being the high point of this passage. But we do so at our own peril because we can misperceive really where the climactic point of this passage is, which is all the verses leading up to that. Because really, simply the fact that this holy God of the entire universe stepped out of eternity and into our lives and did so with Isaiah on that day, that really is the high point of this passage. And saying, here I am, send me, is just really the epilogue of it. And really the good fortune of Isaiah and for you and me simply to be a part of this incredible missional calling. It's really his calling, not ours. We're blessed to be a part of it. I mean, you know, without his calling, we wouldn't have one. Uh, not only the call to salvation, which we celebrated through this baptism with Abigail, but really the call to go on mission to have others come to saving knowledge of Jesus and be baptized as well. The grace for you and me is simply to be a part of it. What's our theme this year? It's all his. It's all his story. How blessed you and I are simply to be a part of it. Well, let's jump right into this because you have an earthly climax at the beginning uh, that really causes a good bit of crisis. Let's go to verse 1 here. It was in the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, it's important to keep in mind, this is 740 B.C. Uzziah, who has been king for 52 years, at the point where it really was the high watermark for the kingdom of Israel, that that everything was going so well, it was prosperous, it was stable. It really was a high point. It really was when Israel reached its zenith. But now he's died. And it's a crisis. It's an incredible point of crisis for these people. And what does Isaiah do? Because Isaiah knows things are not going to get much better for a while, and they don't. It's not long after this that the Assyrian Empire comes and overtakes the kingdom of Israel. But he knows it's not going to be the same. Where does he go? He goes to the temple after Uzziah dies. Let me ask you, do you remember where you were when 9-11 happened, when you you found out about the, the 
uh, planes going into the building. How many of y'all remember right where you were? No doubt Isaiah knew where he was when Isaiah died, 52 years as their ruler. I'll never forget 9-11, and, and it was during a chapel hour at Sanford, and I was up there introducing a speaker, and we started getting whisperings of these things going on. And I'll never forget, because after the chapel hour, I went back to the office, and I called my staff together, and I said, look, we need to open up the chapel for folks, and it might take us a little while you know, to figure out the scheduling and make sure we can do this and cancel other things and all that. So it took a little while longer to get the email out to everybody to say, you're welcome to come into the chapel. But you know what was amazing? A lot of people who were in chapel at the 10 o'clock hour just stayed in there. And in fact, I remember looking at the window even before we sent out the email and people were streaming into Reed Chapel. 9-11 occurred, this crisis occurred, and people just felt led to go to the chapel. It's where they needed to be. The temple is where Isaiah needed to be. It's where he needed to go. Now, what did he experience while he was in there? Better, what did he learn and what do we learn from him? A few things. First of all, this whole missional enterprise that you and I are so blessed to be a part of in which this church does do so well, it's really his mission. It's his sovereign mission. Look at the verse again, and it's very interesting. First of all, let me ask you this, because you know, it's almost as if Isaiah is trying to describe how incredible and majestic and holy this moment is, but it just doesn't do it. How many of y'all have been, raise your hand if you've been to the Grand Canyon. How many of y'all have been to the Grand Canyon? Okay. How many of y'all have seen a picture of the Grand Canyon? Okay. Let me get a yay or a nay. Does a picture of the Grand Canyon do it justice, yay or nay? Nay, okay. I feel like I'm in a Baptist business meeting. I shouldn't have done that. Okay, uh, exactly. It really does not. I remember getting a postcard from there after I had been there. It was the summer of 84 when I met you, and we were out there together. And um, uh, best summer of my life. And, uh, but I remember seeing a postcard after being out there. When you get to the edge of it, you lived out there, didn't you, Stevie Ray? I mean, what, for a year, two years? You, you like, lived right at the cusp of the Grand Canyon. That had to be cool. And just to look at it and see the majesty of it and then see a picture of it and you realize a picture just doesn't do the Grand Canyon justice. Well, in the same way, the words on a page do not nearly do justice to Isaiah's vision that he had of God in the temple. And we need to keep that in mind. But it's interesting how the holiness of God is magnified in this passage. You notice it does not describe what God looked like. It describes what's around God. There's the throne There's the robe, but it doesn't describe God himself. Why? Because God is too holy to be described. There's no description in this this passage of of the sovereign God. There's no attempt to express it. He's far too holy. We really don't even have a depiction of him in a different way until we get to the advent of Jesus in the Gospels. But, you know, he's on this throne high and lifted up. You can just picture Isaiah just craning his neck trying to see the top of it. Probably cannot, again, magnifying the sovereignty of God. And then you have these interesting creatures known as the seraphim. Go to verse 2. Attending him were mighty seraphim, each having six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. They were these amazing, fiery, blazing creatures. And I'm not going to go any further to try to describe them. Through the centuries, scholars have tried to describe, no, they were really more like this. No, they looked more like this. I think they're, in a sense, part and parcel of the holiness of God. And I don't think I can attempt to even explain what they look like. But they were some blazing, winged creatures that were mysterious and, in a sense, holy themselves. And speaking of holiness, you get to that powerful, powerful passage in verse 3. In fact, I'm going to step down here because I love this passage so much. Verse 3 
They were calling out to each other, these seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I'm going to go off the manuscript for just a second, and I share this in the first service. But I get tired of all the suffering and pain and injustice in the world just like you do, all the violence and all that. And I know earlier translations often say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But really, there's a militaristic connotation there in the Hebrew. And, it, and, I, and this is a good translation of heaven's armies. And with all the stuff we deal with in this life, I like knowing that there are beings on God's side as I deal with the demonic and, yes, demons you know, out there every day that try to uh, frighten me, bring me down, uh, make me despair and all that. It's good to know, you know we're on the winning team already. Can I just say that? I know I'm sounding real preachery. Just deal with it because... I'm a preacher. And, and, but I, I've really been blessed by that translation because I realized, man, these, these beings and God himself who is already victorious, as the book of Revelation says, they've got our back. They've got our back, and that's the best of news. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That's in the Hebrew. Holy, holy, holy. You've got to really appreciate Hebrew linguistics to understand how important this is. If, if a word was ever repeated once, it, you were magnifying it just, just many times fold. Great example, and I know I've used it before, but uh, during the first five days of the creation account, God looks at everything that he created and he says it was what? It is good. Uh, tov is the word there in the Hebrew. And then he creates a human being in his own image on the sixth day, and he looks at it and he doesn't just say it is tov, it is good, it is what? Very good. Very good. And in the literal Hebrew, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's tov tov. That isn't just tov, that's tov tov. Well, you double it and it magnifies the meaning of it. Well, Isaiah triples it here. His account of these seraphim who triple it. Holy, 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 kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. It's as if even these seraphim that are, in a sense, you know, otherworldly holy beings, they cannot even express his holiness themselves. You know, they, the, their words can't contain God's holiness, just like ours definitely cannot. And it's a beautiful passage that's echoed. You hear an echo of it in Revelation chapter 4, where John recounts that the, the seraphim are still singing, holy, 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 but he adds something. The lamb is on his throne, and he sits on the throne forever. Holy, 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 and he sits on the throne forever. So Jesus is forever holy, infinitely holy He's the sovereign, and so it is his missional call. So it is his sovereign mission, but it's also his missional initiative, thank God, because he does that for us. Let's look at verse 4. Their voices shook the temple. That's pretty cool. Shook the temple to its foundations. In other words, it had the seismic effect on him and on anyone else who might have been witnessing it. And the entire building was filled with smoke. Now, where's the smoke coming from? Probably two sources. One is the altar that's burning there, which is interesting. Altars were used for what back then? Sacrifices, right? But also, oftentimes in the Old Testament, the presence of God is signified by a cloud. So probably both of those, but the smoke, if nothing else, is coming from an altar. So, Uh, You have the smoke emerging there. You have this seismic kind of quaking going on. Now, when an event or crisis shakes us to our foundations, what do we do? We realize how small we are in the world, in this life, especially compared to God. And that's where it gets really interesting here. Go to verse 5. This is great. Now, I I learned it growing up. How many of y'all learned it growing up? Woe is me. Then I said, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Did anybody, the old school? Come on, old school. Old school's good. Okay. 
I like this translation, the New Living Translation. It's all over. I found out, and by the way, it was a, Jeff Leonard preached last week, right? I heard he did a terrible job. Uh, but uh, uh, I ran upstairs to make sure I was getting my Hebrew correct because I wanted to, I said, Jeff, this word for woe is me or it's all over, it sounds like an interjection. Like, oh, or something like that. He said, yep, because we looked it up and it's oile. oile. It's like, oile. I mean, you know, he, he sees the sovereign God of the universe. That's my, maybe a good expression, oile, you know. And it really winds up deriving into the Yiddish. Have y'all ever had a Jewish friend say, oive? Yeah, that's where we get it. That's where we get it. It's, it's kind of cool. Okay, so he looks up and says, oy vey, <laughs> I am doomed. It's like, oh my God, I am in trouble. And the word there, doomed, is interesting. He says, oy vey, I am doomed. The word for doomed there connotes dissolving, dissolution. <laughs> it's saying, I, I feel so small, it's like I'm dissolving right now. And Folks, when crisis hits us, oftentimes that's exactly what it does to us. And it can especially do that when we compare ourselves to the holy, infinite, magisterial God of all things. And we become very aware that we are a people of what? Filthy lips. Isaiah realizes his sinfulness, his unworthiness for God. And I've got to be really honest. I get more and more and more worried about how people minimize their understanding of the holy, sovereign God of all things, when it comes to their willingness to examine their own sins. Anybody ever grow up in a denomination where, where you have a prayer of examine, and you really kind of examine your sins and ponder those? Some of you are nodding your head, you know what I'm talking about, and sometimes I don't think we do that enough. Uh, we have some people who don't really acknowledge their sin due to distraction, some due to pride. I think one of the worst ones these days is we victimize ourselves. What do, we, what do I mean by that? We kind of blame God for our sins. Uh, I'll never forget a number of years ago, I know Alex Rodriguez, uh, A-Rod, Major League Baseball player was found guilty of of using uh, performance-enhancing drugs, using steroids primarily. And I'll never forget, a little bit later on, there was this ESPN interview with him, and this guy went, the interviewer went down this litany of all the bad things he had been doing, including, you know, drug use, steroid use, this kind of thing, his affair with uh, that lame singer Madonna, and and, uh, uh, his divorce from his wife after having that affair with that singer, and uh, he, he just said, what do you have to say for all this? What do you have to say for all this, A-Rod? Quote, he said, I think God has a reason for everything. Oh, that's convenient, as the church lady would say. In other words, he's saying, I believe that somehow God was tied up in my taking of drugs and the affair and the divorce, so it's really him. What A-Rod is saying is, we're not sinners, we're mistakers, And in a sense, we are victims. God's really to blame. You know, God puts us through sin himself so that something special can happen to us in the long run. Give me a break, please. Uh, Later on, Philip Yancey, I remember, was interviewed uh, on television after Princess Diana's unfortunate death with a traffic accident. And the first question was, sir, you're a minister. Will you explain how God could have allowed such a tragic accident? And Yancey just looked at him and said, could it have something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? How exactly was God involved? I remember reading uh, Sports Illustrated uh, uh, some time back. There was a, I think he was a middleweight boxer named Ray Boom Boom Mancini who actually knocked a Korean boxer out but killed him in the ring. And he found out about it the next day. And at the press conference, someone asked him if he had any comment. And Mancini, who had hit the man with the fatal blow, said, Sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Okay. 
I know of a counselor who was counseling a young woman who had gotten in a relationship with a guy and she became pregnant. And the reason she was coming for counseling was to understand why God allowed that to happen to her. Okay. All this to say, we're in a phase now, we're in a culture now where we have the audacity sometimes to to blame God for our sins when you and I are are the reason and the blame for it. If you really take a look at it, if you really examine it, you realize just how sinful we are before God and his holiness. We, like Isaiah, are a people of filthy lips. When you really, really realize how well he knows you, you know, when, you re- when you read Psalm 139 and you realize, man, he's known me forever, even before I was born, even before I was knit in my mother's womb, he knows all of my thoughts, all of my attitudes, all of my motives, hopefully you will realize how unworthy you are in his presence because of our sin. But thank God he took the initiative for our grace. This is one thing that always blows my mind. Without being asked, God offers us grace through his son, Jesus Christ. Without being asked for the grace, some of us being totally unaware that we don't even need it, he offered his son for us. We didn't even ask for it, but he gave it. It's one of the great mysteries, one of the great miracles of all of the Gospels. Without being asked for it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in a way, that cleansing, that spiritual cleansing, is beautifully depicted in Isaiah in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal he had taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. Now let's not go to the next verse yet. If you feel really low and like you're dissolving before God because you realize what a filthy person you are based on your sin, and one of these blazing creatures is coming at you with a tong, with a hot coal in it, what do you think he might do? I'm thinking Isaiah's thinking he's going to toss it at me, he's going to take me out, whatever, I don't know. But what does he do? Verse 7. He touched my lips with it and said, See, this coal has touched your lips. Now your guilt is removed and your sins are forgiven. He comes to Isaiah at Isaiah's place of need, and he does that for you and me as well. And he touches him with a coal that was from the what? The altar? Cleanses him with that, the altar which was used for what? Sacrifices? What a wonderful forecaster, in a sense, of the living Christ who died on this altar here for you and for me. He cleansed us. You know, it's this beautiful gift that that because of that, we can sing holy, holy, holy ourselves. Just as the seraphim, these, these, in a sense, divine creatures can do, we're able to do that because he cleaned our lips. Somebody referred to this act in Isaiah as the sweet burning of the divine kiss of grace. And that reminded me, when I read it, of of St. Francis of Assisi uh, in the 13th century. I don't know if you know the story of Francis of Assisi when he felt led by God to kiss lepers. I think we have, yeah, beautiful. uh, This is an Asian uh, depiction of it uh, in art. But he sensed God was telling him that wherever you go, you need to kiss lepers. If you see anyone with leprosy, you do that. And at first it was repulsive for Francis. Uh, He was very hesitant to do it. He was very uncomfortable with the feel of their skin, with the smell uh, that, that was sort of repugnant, but he felt that God wanted him to do it. And after a while, it became his spiritual discipline, and wherever he went, he was known for having the audacity and the courage and the spiritual strength to go up and kiss the lepers who were such outcasts in any community. I thought about that, and I thought about what I saw a year ago Uh, in St. Peter's Square at the Vatican when Pope Francis 
uh, spotted a gentleman with a very rare uh, disease called neurofibromatosis. It, it really is, is, is a modern-day leprosy, really, and it's a disease with these devastating effects. It, it, it gives you disfigurement, intense pain, learning impediments, uh, cancerous lesions, tumors all over the body. And I'll never forget this picture of him embracing this man and, and kissing him on the head and praying over him. I just thought it was one of the most beautiful depictions I've ever seen. That's really an, a less intense picture than some of them. Some of you may have even seen uh, where you could see the person even more, but Francis took him right in uh, after his namesake and kissed him and ministered to him. I remember me being so moved by that when I saw that on a film clip, and I thought to myself, here I am, a modern-day leper, diseased and repulsive in the presence of God's holiness. And yet he came to me and gave me the kiss of grace. And he did that for you too. That's us there to the right. And yet he comes to us and offers you and me the wonderful, blazing, hot gift, touch of grace. And so here we are. You and I can give the kiss of grace to others and take it to others. It's his sovereign mission. It's not ours. We just get to be a part of it, which is amazing. And it's his initiative. But finally, it is his invitation. Let's look at verse 8. And this really comes as the epilogue to the whole climax of God coming to Isaiah pretty personally, though still holy. Then I heard the Lord God asking, whom should I send as a messenger to this people? Who will go for us? I said, here I am. Send me. I love that. Isaiah wasn't drafted. He wasn't constricted. Uh, He wasn't forced. He wasn't compelled. Immediately he volunteers. Why? Because he was in the presence of the holy God in the context of worship. It was in the context of seeing the glory of God and glorifying God in worship that he goes on mission. I think that's so important. I know we've talked about this before. I think sometimes you and I look through the wrong end of the telescope when we think about our being a missional people. We focus on the needs that we see out there first instead of the greatness of God. And it starts with that. One theologian in a wonderful piece about missions says, missions exist because worship does not. You know, Ultimately, when we get to heaven, we're going to be glorifying God the whole time. We're going to be worshiping. It'll be great. But we don't do that enough as we should and not qualitatively as we should. Therefore, that's why we have to go out on mission. Worship precedes mission. Got to keep that in mind because I'm a doer. A lot of us here like to get out there and get after it. That's great. But it comes as a result of being here in the presence of God and worship and glorifying him. And then we go. Great example of that, Ralph Garth. I don't know how many of you were, were there last week. Were any all there Wednesday night when Ralph spoke? Oh, well, it was just great. And uh, uh, she sang. Her name, Renee, thank you. See, Wells, I'm messing with names today. Renee sang, and it was wonderful. Uh, Ralph got up and spoke, and I always loved to hear him speak. But he talked about how he has a team down there at Truvine Church. And any of them who are wearing that black T-shirt like the one that he has there, it says Truvine Mission Team or something like that. Yeah, Truvine Mission Team. What they do is get together, and first of all, you know, Ralph told us about how they go each week to a different project or apartment complex because of how many unchurched people there are in those complexes. And he and Kathleen literally walk around the complex for seven days, good biblical number, and they pray. They do a prayer walk every day for seven days, and they're, in a way, softening it up, right? And after those seven days, he and all the other people who have those black t-shirts on go in and minister to prostitutes, 
to drug addicts, to alcoholics, to abused people, to homeless people. It goes on and on. I love this picture that Charlotte uh, Coggin gave me because this is actually uh, Truvine crossing over to another people group. These are some Hispanic folks in a complex there that's uh, primarily Hispanic, and many of them don't even speak English, but they see that Ralph and these people love them and want to continue to love on them and show the love of Jesus, and so they become friends with these folks. But they fearlessly go to these places, But I think it's so cool that prior to doing that, they do a prayer walk where they, as Ralph told me, number one, give glory to God, and number two, pray for the folks in there. They prepare themselves for that, and then, and then they go. And think about those people who go in there, by the way. I just love to think about that because some of the people who were there this past Wednesday night in that wonderful, worshipful time down there before we commissioned them, these were people who were ex prostitutes, ex-heroin addicts, ex-alcoholics, ex-homeless people. Folks, they know what it means to glorify God based on where they have come from. I wonder if sometimes you and I have become kind of dulled to the reality of how we were brought out of the darkness into his marvelous light. These folks know, which is why they can go to these places fearlessly because they have known what it means to be saved and sanctified by Christ and to worship him. I hope you and I will follow their example. Well, I think of the Westminster Confession, the chief end of man. Did anybody grow up with that? Is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. You really can't get missional until you do that first. That's our chief end, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I so appreciated what Charles said earlier. The most important thing the deacons do here is not, oh, we're going to vote on this thing next, you know, okay, anybody want to debate about it? No, we don't, you know, if we have to do that, we will. Mainly what we do as deacons is pray. Because we can't be the servants, we can be as deacons of this church until we spend qualitative time in prayer. And most importantly, again, as Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Isaiah used his time in an incredible way for the rest of his life. And and we ran into somebody who did that uh, very recently. Does anybody remember Stuart Scott from ESPN? Great reporter. Oh, he's incredible. He was the booyah guy. And he died of cancer at 49, but I'll never forget at the ESPY Awards when he received the Jimmy V Award and his marvelous quote that, that I should have memorized, but I don't, but I was so moved by it. He was dying of cancer at the time that he was giving this speech. And he said, when you die, it does not mean that you lose to cancer. You beat cancer by how you live, why you live, and the manner in which you live. And I would hope that as a confessing people, we would remember that the ultimate way that you and I do that is to act missionally on behalf of Christ and just use every moment we can to do just that. And we talked about a guy just recently who did just that. We talked about Jason Lyon, uh, multiple letters at his high school, scholar, athlete, amazing guy. Some of you remember, do you remember when Ashley came, his uh, sister came here and spoke? He had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. He was a a first semester senior in his high school out in San Diego, but used his time here to bring the gospel really to hundreds of people. Was an amazing, amazing witness. He made the great transition this past Thursday. He passed on, but not without impacting hundreds and hundreds of people, maybe mainly young people. Uh, I, I heard in multiple clips where I saw him, his, his big phrase was, you know what, my life is expendable. And that may sound uh, dreary or sensationalistic, but he's right. All of our lives are expendable. You know what, we are all able to expend because in the long run, we're going to expend. We're going to die. I hate to bring that up, but, but 
we're all going to expend. And his point being, I'm going to expend all my time, all my energy, all that I can with my mind and my heart and my passion and my hands and my feet to bring the gospel of Jesus to other people. He did just that until he went to meet Christ personally on Thursday. I'm wearing his, his uh, wristband one more time. It says Lionhearted. And on this side it says Jehovah Rapha. It means the God who heals. Well, he has experienced that ultimate healing because he is now in that place where there is no more pain, no more suffering, no more disease, no more tears, no more uncertainty, no more violence, no more war. Nothing but peace and grace and praise and ultimate, ultimate love. We'll get there too. But for now, will you join in this wonderful mission of God's? Be a part of it. Be blessed to be a part of it. And bring this good news of the grace that can touch the lips and hearts of people that they might come to know him personally. Let's prepare our hearts for the table here. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord, this table with the bread and, and the drink is such an amazing depiction of your holiness. We still won't even witness your holiness until we, we see you face to face, but this is a wonderful depiction of the holiness of the moment when your son Jesus breathed his last on the cross for us by the breaking of his body, by the shedding of his blood. He did that for us and brought us to you, built the bridge that we could cross to reach you and your holiness even now. How amazing it is that the bread really was the, the food of poor people in Jesus' day and the wine was the drink of rich people. This meal covers all peoples. And in the long run, it equals the field because we are all equally wounded, broken, sinners in need of your grace. So as we partake of this meal now, O oh God, may we give you praise and glory for your goodness and, yes, for your holiness and majesty. We pray these things in your name. Amen.